We've done the six months of truth uh, reading campaign for the, uh, really the past year. We've had two different uh, six months of truth reading plans. Uh, the first one is through the New Testament. The last one is through the Proverbs. And uh, it, it's been successful. I've heard a lot of good uh, feedback, uh, both from the survey that we took earlier in the year and uh, just by word of mouth. And so uh, I think it's time that as a church we expand uh, to not only just cover those areas, but be people of the entire scriptures. And so starting in January, we'll be doing two years through the Bible. And, and Jonathan is absolutely right. The reason we go for two years is because most, uh, the average person reading the Bible in a year is a daunting task. And so we want to do that uh, uh, together, and we want to do that in a way that we can have the most amount of success. And uh, the way that we're doing this is, is through the plan that we have on the back table as you're making your way out. You'll see the basket there. You'll see the plan that goes with it. And what's unique about this one is that we have this book called How to Read the Bible, book by book, that goes along with it. You do not have to use that book. You don't have to get the book. You don't need to have anything to do with the book. But I think it's going to help you in understanding what we're reading because the little uh, paragraphs that they have coincide with the actual reading that we're doing for that day. And so I want to encourage you to pick that up, go to the Welcome Center and see um, the books there. So this is on that little table right there as you make your way out. The books are over on the Welcome Center. Also, you can go online to our website and purchase it as well. EmmanuelMora.com. Go under Resources. Look for Two Years of Truth. You can download this if you forget it today. And um, you can also order a book right there on, on the site. So um, Matthew chapter 1. Uh, we're going to be in 18 through 25. And before we uh, start our time together, allow me to go to the Lord in prayer. And then we will see what he has. Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. Lord, we thank you that you uh, sent your son uh, as a child to experience the full gamut of the human experience, and we thank you for him being able to uh, to understand our very weakness and our very uh, the very things that we struggle with. And so, Father, this morning I pray that uh, as we dig into your Word, that you would give us hearts of courage, that the Holy Spirit would come and uh, not just live in us, but that he would reign in us, God. So would you do that work in our hearts and in our lives this morning? And it's in Jesus' name that I ask this. Amen. Well, you know, Chicken McNuggets have a tendency to bring out the best in people. Uh, a 12-year-old girl in New York City recently was hailed for her bravery in a recent argument with a male classmate that almost turned violent. And, and what was that argument over? It was that the boy had asked for one of her chicken McNuggets, and she refused. And uh, the, uh, the police report says that after he was denied once by, about this chicken nugget, the boy followed the girl into a nearby subway station, pulled a gun out at, on her, and pointed it at her head. Incredibly, the police report says that the girl simply took her hand, slapped the gun away, told the boy to leave her alone, and then went about the rest of her day. Police found and appropriately charged the boy for juvenile attempted robbery, and the chicken McNugget-loving girl was an internet sensation after that. Uh, and you might think that this... that. Her unusual bravery here was birthed out of her absolute obsession and love with and devotion to Chicken McNuggets. Or you could claim that this girl's action came from a stubborn attitude that would not budge 
and refused to be messed with. You could even say that her, her bravery came from a youthful ignorance of not understanding a situation as serious as the one that she went through. But whatever the case, this 12-year-old girl displayed a courage and a bravery that most of us, if we are facing a situation like that, uh, could not uh, emulate even on our best days. You know, we're in the second week of the Advent season. It's a season where we look forward to the coming of, of Christ. And when we think about how to describe the season, we might use a few words like joy. We might use uh, the word peace or love or perhaps magical and wonderful. Uh, a few years ago, Caribou Coffee decided to uh, have the Christmas season promoted uh, by using this word called wonder love. Now, I don't even know what that means. Um, in fact, the, the closest word that I could think of is the German word wanderlust, which has nothing to do with the Christmas season. Um, but whether it's a traditional descriptor or an attempt at cute advertising, one way that we often don't think about describing the Christmas season is in the word courage. True courage isn't necessarily standing up to a bully who wants to take your chicken McNugget. True courage, uh, that, that's part of it, and it, and it is quite brave because, let me tell you, the chicken nuggets are serious business. But uh, true courage isn't foolishness. It isn't the absence of fear. Rather, true courage is believing what is right and acting on what is right in spite of our fear and in spite of our reservations and doing that regardless of the outcome or regardless of the ramifications and consequences that follow. So this morning, we are going to look at biblical courage as an attitude of Christmas. And we will look to the very story of Joseph, the adoptive father of Jesus, and we are not simply just to emulate the courage that Joseph presents to us in Matthew's account here, but rather we will see how Joseph's unique faith pointed to the one who had ultimate courage and can impart that courage to us, Jesus Christ, uh, his adopted son. And through it, we'll see how our mercy, faith, and obedience are rooted in Jesus and displayed by the courage that's given to us through the power of the Holy Spirit. So if you have your, your copy of God's Word uh, open in Matthew chapter 1, would you uh, join with me as I read, in, uh, starting in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, 
But he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So Christmas is a time of courage, and this year, let me uh, encourage you to follow Jesus courageously. And one of the ways that we do that is to follow Jesus in courageous mercy. Follow Jesus in courageous mercy. Now imagine with me that you're a young man, you've recently been engaged, and, and uh, circling in your mind are uh, the dreams about a life together uh, with this beautiful girl that you uh, are engaged with and the life that you're going to have together and the possibility of creating a family together. Uh, you're also dreaming about how uh, you know, the wonderful burden of uh, providing for and protecting uh, the family that is to come and how you're going to support her and the children. And then your fiancé leaves for a number of months in order to visit her aging relative who miraculously has become pregnant. And then she comes back, and it's totally unmistakable. Your fiancé has a baby bump. Well, what in the world is, is going on here? Maybe you, maybe you give her the benefit of the doubt. Maybe she's gained a little weight and you just don't want to say anything. But you kind of know that something's going on here. And you see the classic symptoms. She's sick every morning. Her feet are starting to swell. And she keeps crazy, craving matzo ball soup. You can't take it anymore. And so you ask. And her response totally dashes all the dreams. And all the hopes that you've been having for the past number of months. All those thoughts that you've been having of dreaming of a life together change into a different swirl of emotions that is complete with uh, betrayal, anger, jealousy, sadness, hurt, regret. Maybe there's, there's embarrassment that's involved in this too, maybe some shame, it would be an absolutely excruciating situation to be in. Yet this is exactly the situation that Joseph found himself in. Mary and Joseph had recently been betrothed. Now it's easy to look at that word betrothed and uh, transfer our understanding of engagement onto the idea of betrothment. But betrothment and engagement are, are something uh, completely different. They're not synonymous. In our modern age, engagement is a great time in order to prepare for your life together. It is a great time to get premarital counseling to strengthen what is good and to, uh, to build on uh, maybe those weaker spots that might need some, uh, some work as they go through uh, their life together. Uh, I'm also very serious about another reason that engagement is a good thing. It's because through pre-marriage counseling, sometimes it's just discovered that the two people that want to get married just simply shouldn't be married. And those sorts of things come out before the rings go on, and that's a very good thing. Some people aren't compatible. Some marriages that are looking into the future, you can see based on uh, past history together, it just might not work. And engagement is, is one of those times to, to realize those things before you say, I do. And in a betrothal, however, you are legally pledged. You are legally bound to the other person. Uh, and though you're legally pledged, you're not fully married yet. In Jesus' day, the girl would be anywhere from the ages to, from about 12 to 14, 
uh, the man was anywhere from around that age to 18, maybe even uh, slightly older. And during that betrothal period, the, uh, the girl would still live with her parents, and the man would be securing a home for uh, his future bride and family. A betrothal usually lasted about a year, sometimes a little longer than that, but generally speaking, a betrothal lasted uh, about a year. And unlike an engagement where you can just give the ring back and break up uh, if that's needed, in order to break a betrothal, you had to go through a legal divorce. Uh, the, though the betrothed uh, couple uh, could, had not, uh, could not come together sexually until the marriage was solidified, an allegation of one of them sleeping with someone else was considered adultery as compared to sexual immorality. And we can define those in different ways, I think. The consequence for this adultery was divorce, which would either ruin someone socially, uh, which happened more in Jesus' day, or the other option was that uh, the traditional consequence was a stoning, which didn't happen quite as much in Jesus' day as it had in years past. So Mary and Joseph, they're betrothed. They're legally husband and wife. They just haven't come together in ceremony or, or conjugally yet. And it's at this point that Joseph has absolutely no idea that Gabriel the angel has met with Mary and told her God's plan to bring Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, into the world. He probably knew about Elizabeth, who was Mary's relative. We, we don't know what kind of relative she was. We just know that, that somehow Mary was related to Elizabeth. And he had more than likely heard about her miraculous pregnancy and maybe even encouraged Mary to go and spend some time with her. And she's gone for a few months, and she comes back, and she's pregnant. And Joseph here is really in a pickle because not only does he have to deal with the shame and the embarrassment uh, that comes with this, this stigma of, of Mary's um, supposed adultery, but he has to decide, what's he going to do with this, this girl? Now, he, he, he is um, somewhat uh, traditionally obligated to do of one, uh, one of three things. He could, uh, he could push for her to be stoned, but he's a just man. He, he's not willing to go down that route. He could, divo- he could divorce her absolutely publicly, do it in a public forum, in a public court, which would destroy Mary for the rest of her life. She would be ostracized in her community, in her family. She would have no one. Both her and the baby would have miserable lives. And here, uh, the other option is that he uh, chose then, even in his pain and his hurt, he opts for the most compassionate response. And verse 19 tells us that uh, her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, this is the option. This shows Joseph's just uh, uh, his good-natured heart. That in doing this, he could both fulfill the law, yet also show mercy to uh, this woman who, yes, he was hurt by, but which he nonetheless loved. He truly cared about Mary. And this is the best possible outcome that he can think of in such a horrible circumstance. Now, we need to be careful here not to read 
too much just into these verses because there's a whole context that's happening here. Um, we know that from the context, Mary has done nothing wrong that would warrant this divorce or a stoning. Rather, Mary is to be commended by it for her faith. You know, whereas Catholics can be guilty of venerating Mary, Protestants can likewise be guilty of diminishing her or not seeing her for the value that she plays within uh, Jesus' story here. And from Joseph's perspective here in verses 18 and 19, we can understand how God wants us to live courageously in principle when times of, of turmoil come up. When we're threatened, or when we're treated unfairly, when we're wronged, what's the easy thing to do? It is to go to the mattresses with them. It is to seek retribution, to get punishment, to get them back. It's easy to go eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It doesn't take much courage to seek revenge, especially if it's through the law. What does take courage is righteousness. Because in righteousness, we don't seek retribution. We seek mercy and compassion. Verse 19 says that Joseph was a just man. Another way to translate that word just is that he was righteous. He was He had a right standing in his behavior and his moral attributes. He knew the law of the priests. He knew the law of the Pharisees. And he knew uh, the law of the scribes. And they required strict obedience to the law. Yet Joseph knew his Old Testament. He knew the difference between the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. He knew what Jeremiah wrote in chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. This is what he wrote. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, not, let not the mighty man boast in his might, not let, the, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. He knew what Micah wrote in Micah chapter 6, verse 8. He said, uh, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness. To love kindness. And to walk humbly with your God. So what is the spirit of God's law? It's to be like God. To love him and love others by practicing mercy. By practicing compassion and kindness. It takes courage to give mercy to those who hurt us. It takes courage to love those who wrong us. It takes courage... To leave, the, to, to leave retribution to God and let him deal with it. And to walk in a spirit of grace toward an enemy. And perhaps the most interesting aspect of this is that Joseph is not pointing to himself as a model of what this looks like. 
but rather his righteous acts are being used to point to God who is using this situation to bring about his son, Jesus, and the righteousness that Jesus would give to all of us through faith. You see, Joseph is pointing to someone that is greater than he is. Jesus was confronted with hatred. Jesus was confronted with abuse. He was confronted with ridicule and eventually death. And yet he loved and showed mercy to those who did that to him, including us, by the way, by dying on the cross. Joseph was pointing to the one who would redeem his enemies and give them a new changed life, a new life that would show others his greatness by following Jesus in courageous mercy. So how do you, in what ways do you need to show courageous mercy today? And secondly, we see that we need to follow Jesus in courageous faith. Follow Jesus in courageous faith. There's this wild scene in the musical Fiddler on the Roof in which Tevya, who is the lead character of of the show, uh, he's arranged for his oldest daughter, Zidal, to be married to Laser Wolf, who is the town butcher. And uh, though it was uh, customary... For the father to arrange a marriage for his daughter, there's this immediate pushback from Seidel. She does not want to marry Laser Wolf. Uh, Not only is she sort of like repulsed by him, but she's also in love with her best friend, Motto, who is the town tailor. And Tevya ends up uh, uh, caving into uh, Seidel and telling her that she doesn't need to marry Laser Wolf, and instead she can marry Model. And the biggest problem of all then emerges after that. Tevya comes to the realization, oh man, I just changed this. How am I going to tell my wife about this? And so he devises this plan, and the best way that he could think of is to wake up or pretend to wake up in the middle of the night screaming bloody murder. And when his wife, uh, asks, his wife Golda asks him uh, what's going on, he makes up this whole entire dream uh, about uh, his dead aunt Fruma Sarah visiting him from the grave to tell him that there's no way that Seidel should marry Laser Wolf and that rather she should marry this model because it's just going to be a disaster if she marries this, uh, this laser wolf. And it actually works. Golda falls for this, uh, this cunning trick. And for us, if our spouse woke up in the middle of the night screaming bloody murder, and we asked them uh, what's going on, and they said, I'm going to make a major life change because I just had this really crazy dream, most of us would look at that person and say, well, why don't you give it a few days and just uh, relax? It was a bad dream. Maybe you ate some bad pizza or watched a movie you shouldn't have before you went to bed. But to the Jews, this was something completely different. Dreams were ways in which God or the spirit realm would communicate to the living. And though we'd write it off, there does seem to be certain times in the Bible uh, in which God does use this medium. Verse 20 is one of them. Joseph had been pondering about how to go through with this divorce. 
And this angel shows up in a dream. And it's interesting that this is unlike any other angelic vision that we see in the entire Bible. Because every time someone encounters a, uh, an angel in the Bible, they are cowered in fear. There's something terrifying about being in the presence of an angel. It doesn't seem like Joseph is scared to be around this angel. Rather, the angel picks up on a different kind of fear. It's an inner conflict that Joseph is having. He says in verse 20, Do not fear to take Mary as your wife. So Joseph is encouraging Joseph, uh, the angel is encouraging Joseph in two ways. The first is just tell him, don't go through with this divorce. Now that would certainly take courage because then that would be going against the customs, the traditions, the attitudes and the perspectives of all of Joseph's contemporaries and those that are in his community. And second, notice that the angel encourages Joseph to actually marry her, to go through with it. This would even take more courage because if he does go through with the marriage, he is not only going to be the laughingstock of his town, probably for the rest of his life, but the, also be the object of ridicule and embarrassment and shame. He will be known in the town of Nazareth as the one that was duped by that girl and still went through with it. And on top of that, he is going to be married to a woman who's always going to have a stigma, and he's going to be raising a child who is going to have to grow up amongst other children who know his uh, illegitimate roots. But notice the kind of faith that the angel is calling Joseph to. Look with me in verse 20 again. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So not only was Joseph to abstain from fearing this marriage covenant with Mary, but he's also to believe that this child that she's bearing has supernatural origins. And I think that if we were realistically looking at this through the eyes of Joseph, I think everything up to verse 22 would be very hard to believe. Your fiancé left for months. She comes back pregnant. She tells you she's still a virgin. And by the way, the baby that's in her, well, yeah, that's from God. Yeah, right. But many scholars believe that verse 22 is actually a continuation of the angel's uh, response, a revelation to Joseph. And I tend to agree with them. Why? Because it provides the historical context and the foundation why Joseph can believe this. Look in verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So now the angel put some weight on this. It harkens back to Isaiah 7.14, a time in which the, uh, the prophet Isaiah had prophesied to King Ahaz, uh, who was the king of Judah, not to get too stressed out about King, uh, king Pekah, the king of Israel, and Rezin, the king of Syria, and their pressure on Ahaz. 
Because a child would be born in order to show Ahaz a sign that God is going to take care of the matter. And indeed, it had an immediate fulfilling, yet there was a deeper fulfillment that the Jews uh, had, had maybe not seen it in that verse, but indeed something that they were looking toward. So when the angel comes to Joseph and says that Mary's pregnancy is to completely fulfill this promise of God, now we're playing a different game. This is believable. Maybe Mary's telling the truth. Maybe I can believe her. Maybe this child is the one that I need to bow down to and worship. And so Joseph engages in courageous faith. You know, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, Diedrich Bonhoeffer wrote that when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And what Bonhoeffer meant by that was essentially that it takes courage to follow Jesus. Following Jesus... It's kind of a paradox because following Jesus, I don't know if I should say it this way, isn't for sissies, but we have to be weak to follow him. It takes courage. Truly following Jesus means that you face the risk of humiliation. Following Jesus means that you risk the loss of friends and family. Following Jesus faces the risk of being called a fool. Following Jesus has the risk of losing everything, but the benefit of following Jesus far outweighs the risk that is involved. In Christ, we have forgiveness of sin. Friends, you can't put a price tag on a clear and clean conscience. It's worth everything in the world. In Christ, our fears are subsided. In Christ, we can have true joy. In, tr in Christ, we have hope in a dark and difficult world. In Christ, we have comfort for our afflictions. In Christ, we're more than conquerors. In Christ, our shame is mended. Through Christ, addictions flee. Through Christ, we're able to see that this world is not all that there is. In Christ, we can look death square in the face and say, you've got nothing on me. You might win this battle, but Christ has won the war, and I will reap the benefits of that. Faith is incredibly risky. It takes courage. In light of Christ being not only corroborated in the historical record, but all of his claims were logically true. So why not trust in him with your life? Why not put a courageous foot forward and follow him? Why not take the courage and say, I'm in? Friends, Joseph points to a courage that is, uh, that is expected and heaven and hell are in the balance. Come to Jesus today and say, I'm in. Follow Jesus 
with courageous faith. But thirdly, follow Jesus in courageous obedience. Follow Jesus in courageous obedience. Verse 24. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. And when we look at courageous faith, the natural result of that faith is one of obedience. It is one of action. Uh, the, the text implies that Joseph so believed the story of this angel and what the angel commanded him that he was compelled to marry Mary. He was willing to take the hits. He was willing to face the shame. He was willing to risk everything because he had a good woman and he had a great word from God. He not only took Mary as his wife, but look further at the obedience of Joseph in verse 25. He knew her not until she had given birth to a son. Now, it might seem like a bit uh, TMI, too much information in a book like the Bible, but it is really important to see the faith of Joseph. When the text says that he knew her not, that was an ancient way of saying that they didn't have sexual relations even when they were married until Jesus was born. Friends, Mary was not a perpetual virgin. Scripture shows it. And why is that important? It's important because it allows Mary to continue in her virgin state until the Son of God is born in order to have proof positive that there is absolutely no way possible that this baby could have come other in any other way except through the miraculous. And notice the final statement of his obedience in this passage anyway, because Joseph is going to straight up be the man coming up here in a few uh, verses. And he called his name Jesus. He did exactly as the angel had said in verse 21. He named him Jesus. Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua, which means the Lord saves. Joseph, in naming Jesus, is saying that he believed the angel of the Lord when he said that this is what Jesus will do. He will save his people from their sin. And his belief led to obedient action. If he didn't believe him, he could have named him Steve or Bill or whatever. But he named him Jesus. It took courage for Joseph to be obedient. But his obedience was only pointing towards the ultimate expression of obedience that his son, Jesus, would display. Whereas Joseph was tasked with the belief, uh, with belief and marriage, Jesus was tasked to being obedient to the point of death on a cross. And though Jesus asked God repeatedly, if there's any other way that we can get this done, would you please let me go through it that way? But yet, Jesus still willingly and obediently took on one of the most heinous forms of execution that humanity has ever invented. And he did that in order to take the punishment that we deserved for our sins. His courage allowed our sins to be placed on him 
and his righteousness, his right standing with God placed on us. Imagine the courage that it would take for that sort of transfer. Because Jesus was courageously obedient, we can be forgiven. We can be freed. We can be given true life. And if you haven't yet, or maybe you've, uh, you've neglected it, put your faith in Jesus today. Don't lay your head on your pillow tonight without seriously considering the claims of Christ and what this text is telling us today. This has massive implications for what life could be like and is. Receive His forgiveness, His mercy, His grace. Express your faith through obedience. You know, God will often have us go through things that are painful and difficult. Yet courageous faith always leads to obedience. What is the Lord calling you to be obedient to today? Maybe it's having a difficult conversation. Maybe it's breaking off that relationship that you know isn't healthy for you. Maybe it's confessing sin. Maybe it's giving up some uh, pet thing in your life that is keeping you from your family and from God and God's best for you. Maybe it's trusting in Jesus for the first time or returning to Him. Whatever it is, courageously trust Jesus. And follow him in courageous obedience. I don't know about you, but I love chicken nuggets. Maybe not chicken McNuggets, because I don't even know if that's actual chicken. But chicken nuggets are great. Some of my best memories of McDonald's when I was a kid consisted of me dunking those little nuggets into a sea of sweet and sour sauce. But if someone were to put a gun to my head, I wouldn't have a problem giving them up. But I wonder if it came down to it, how many of us could live for Christ in such a courageous way that we're willing to sacrifice anything to keep Him? This Christmas... We must be courageous. We must follow him in courageous mercy. We must follow him in courageous faith. And we must follow him in courageous obedience. He is worth the risk. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift that is Jesus Christ. We thank you for the gift that is faith. Father, I pray that you would unleash your Holy Spirit right now on all of us here. Father, I pray where people uh, here may have weak and feeble uh, knees in certain situations, that you would strengthen those knees and that you would get them to walk in courageous faith, Lord, that they would give up those uh, vices and those passions that keep them from you, Lord, that they would see the glory of Christ, that it, that it doesn't matter what they've, what they've done, that Christ accepts them, but yet he wants to change them, and yet they're involved sort of in that change. And so, God, I want to ask that you would change people today. 
that they would say to you, God, apart from you, I have no good. And so, Father, would you impart in us courage. Courage to love others. Courage to trust you. Courage to be obedient in faith. Not because we have to, but because we want to. Lord, when you call us, you call us bid and die. Uh, come, come and die. And so, Father, I pray that whatever it is that we need to die to today, that you would give us the courage to do that. Lord, it's in Jesus' name that I ask this. Amen. Would you stand with us in the worship team as we respond in faith? Just a reminder, 6.30 tonight, and this is for...